0: Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. It's a special edition of Faith Seeking Understanding. It's the first day of Lent. It's Ash Wednesday. And so normally we gather and we have a service on this day and we have imposition of ashes and we read certain lessons and we have a special liturgy and all those kinds of things. And so we're going to not have that on the show today, though. And what I'm going to do is I'm starting a new um, discipline for myself I mentioned it on Sunday, and that was that I used to blog the daily lessons, which are an Old Testament lesson, an epistle, and a gospel, and a psalm. And so I used to blog those about 400 words a day. And I did that for about seven years, and I've gotten away from doing that lately. Um, and so I decided that I needed something else. And so what I'm going to start doing is, is I'm going to do a, a podcast blog. It'll be much shorter than the normal Sunday things. I'm going to try and keep it to 10, 12 minutes tops. And uh, so – but – I feel like I needed to do a podcast today for Ash Wednesday because it's an important time and an important season. Some of you probably have no earthly idea what I'm talking about, that because you're not Anglican, you're not uh, Roman Catholic, you're not Lutheran, and so you probably don't have any experience, or you're not much. Maybe of Ash Wednesday, you might have seen people walking around with smudges on their foreheads, but that might be all you know about Ash Wednesday. And and what it is, it's a call to a solemn and holy fast. And so it's a time when people give up certain things in their lives. People, I've heard people give up drinking and smoking and caffeine and this, that, and the other thing. And, and none of those are bad in and of themselves. They're, they're, you know, it's good to do all things in moderation. And if anything has more, you know, sort of power in our lives than it deserves, then then we should um, make a decision about that and do something about it with the intention of that becoming a permanent habit. <laughs> Um, and then, But the other thing is is that people take on disciplines, and I mentioned on Sunday's podcast, I mentioned The Celebration of Discipline, a book by uh, Richard Foster, which has been out now for, goodness, maybe 30 years or something like that. It's a good book, and it talks about a variety of the disciplines, and I, I commend that to you. Again, it's Celebration of Discipline, and it's Richard Foster. Uh, it's a wonderful book. It's well done, and uh, it's, it's thorough. in in its treatment of of various disciplines is one chapter per discipline. So I highly recommend that. Um, I I, I like to take on these kinds of disciplines where I'm more in God's Word, for instance. Um, That's something that that tends to shape and change my life. The more time I spend in God's Word, particularly reflecting on it in in a blog or, or in this kind of a format, the better things are for me, to be honest with you. I don't you know I know that there's a principle and there's a reason for that. I'm just not exactly sure why it works so well for me, but it, but it's what I do, and it's a thing that God gave me to do and something that that I know that I'm supposed to do. So that's the important thing is, is, is that it's, it needs to be something that enhances your relationship with him. So you don't have to do a blog, you don't have to do whatever, but you do need to draw close to him, whether that's in prayer or meditation, and meditation needs to be on God's word, not emptying yourself, but filling yourself with him. And so that's, that, that's my commendation for you for, uh, for Lent. And the, and the thing is, what we want to do is we, we don't want to focus on our sins. That's not the point of Lent. The, the focus needs to be on our need of a Savior. It needs to be on how desperately... We need him, and how hopeless we are without him, and and that's really the point of today's lessons. The I'm going to reflect on the daily lessons today, rather than the lessons, the proper lessons for the Ash Wednesday service. So there are daily lessons as well as lessons for that service, and so I want to focus on the on the uh, daily lessons for a couple of different reasons. One is they really are speaking to me, and and so I just want to, and and the other is. This way I get to deal with about two chapters of Jonah, and I love the book of Jonah, and there's a lot in there, and it's rich, and so I'm going to spend extended time in Jonah in this podcast, so buckle up for that. Um, But we're going to start today with the gospel, actually. So Jesus, in Luke 18, 9-14, Jesus tells a parable um, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt so he's speaking to a particular group of people and he sees an arrogance in those people and he tells this parable for that specific reason and that's exactly what Luke tells us he told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt so this is the parable two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I get. Uh Uh-oh, nice. So God grades on the curve of how do you compare with other men? That's what that prayer sounds like. The problem is God doesn't great on that sort of curve. It's not a comparative thing, and we, we tend to do that in our own lives. We tend to look and, and say, well, I'm better than so-and-so and so-and-so, and, so. and you might not name names, but you, you know what you're thinking. I'm better than the people who do these things, just like the Pharisee. We, we all tend to fall into that trap, and it's easy to fall into that trap, but the reality is is that that that's... A falsehood it's a lie it's not the way things work I'm accountable to God not in comparison to other people but in comparison to his standard of perfection perfection how you doing with that have you been perfect because if you haven't been perfect then you don't deserve the resurrection that's what Jesus's life and resurrection tell us because he lived a perfect life not in comparison with other men but with comparison with God's Word and God's standard So the Pharisee is measuring himself against a standard that doesn't matter to anybody in the long run. So the tax collector says, he stands far off. He wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, it says. He beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That was his prayer. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's the point and the goal of prayer, and that's the point and the goal of confession. The Pharisee confessed that he was better than other men. He confessed he didn't just not do those things, he did other things. He fasted twice a week, and he gave tithes of all he got, in the tax collector came before the Lord and all he did was confess his sins and ask God to be merciful. And there's a reason he's asking God to be merciful, because that's God's character is to be merciful to repentant sinners. The word repentant means something. It begins with confession, but that's not the end of repentance. We can talk about that another time, but, but it begins with confession. And the Pharisee didn't confess anything at all, and he justified himself, which means he was not justified before God. He was only justified in his own eyes, and that's exactly what Jesus says here. He might have felt better, but he wasn't justified in the eyes of God. So we start there with what does repentance mean? What does that look like in our lives? And, and, and how do we then see and understand ourselves in the grand scheme of things? And in particular, when we come before the living God, how do we see ourselves? And Jesus says, see yourself like the tax collector in that instance. You're praying to a merciful God, and you are a sinful man. Now I'm going to look at and spend time with this Jonah passage. So here we go. This is Jonah 3, 1 through chapter 4, verse 11, which is the end of the book. And I'm going to just sort of give commentary on this as I go along. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so the reason it came to him a second time is because... Jonah was disobedient the first time. I dealt with this passage, or part of this passage, just a few weeks ago, in fact, and so you're probably going to be familiar with some of this already, but, but there's going to be other things I want to bring to it today. So God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, and Proclaim. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Now, what's happened before that? What changed his mind? Remember, Jonah ran. He went away, and he tried to catch a boat and go to Tarshish. And, well, he caught the boat, and then he went to sleep. And then the, the uh, God sent a great storm on the waters, and the men threw everything off board that they could to lighten the load. And then they all began to call out to their gods, plural, Finally, they went down and they found Jonah, and they said, what are you doing down here sleeping? Get up here and call out to your God. And Jonah says, you know, hey, this is my fault, actually. He said, what do you mean it's your fault? He said, I'm being disobedient to my God, who is the God of everything. And God has thrown this on us, this storm. He said, I'll tell you what. If you throw me overboard, then this will all end. And the men know To take Jonah's life is wrong, and so they beg and plead for some other way of getting out of this. Jonah doesn't even have the courage to do that. He's willing to put everybody's life in danger in order to save his own, and that he might have some sort of plausible deniability before the Lord. He could just jump off the side, right, and stop this whole thing, but no, he's going to lay it on them. That way he's got plausible deniability. He didn't commit suicide. No, these people killed me. They have to make the choice here, and so they finally do. And then they make sacrifices to the Lord because this got to end. And as soon as they threw Jonah in the sea, it ended. And then he's swallowed by a great fish. And there's a lot of Jewish stuff about this, but we're not getting into any of that today. But he, he spends three days in the belly of the fish. And then finally, he prays from the belly of the fish. And his last words of his prayer are, salvation belongs to the Lord. And then he spit up onto the dry land. And that's when this scene occurs. And so Jonah arose And went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Took a lot to get him there. I understand that. Took a lot to get me here. So now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. It was three days journey in breadth. In other words, three days to walk from one side of Nineveh to the other. And Jonah began going into the city, to go into the city, going a day's journey. So he went about a third of the way into the city and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Not much of a sermon, but the people of Nineveh believed God, just like the sailors had believed God that it was Jonah's fault, and if they threw him over into the sea, things would be perfectly fine. And the, and like the sailors were rewarded by throwing Jonah into the sea, God met their plea of stopping this storm, and they made sacrifice to him. So Jonah calls this out, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. And put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them, the entire city. This city that's three days journey in breadth, all the people in the place, put on sackcloth and call for a fast. Every single person, greatest to the least. And then the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes and you remember i told you the only person other than than the king of nineveh in all of scripture to do that was job it, it's it is deep deep repentance it's it's fear-based obviously and they had reasons to fear that that this might be overthrown. They had lost some battles that cost them property recently. There had been an earthquake and a solar eclipse shortly before Jonah shows up. He showed up at exactly the right time for a people who are a pagan people in the sense that they don't believe in the one true and living God to receive a message from this foreign prophet. And so they even the king repents in this dramatic way. And then the king issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, Neither man let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Everything and everybody in Nineveh is going to fast, including the beasts. Israel never had a fast like that, that included the animals. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Now, if you walk into Nineveh in the midst of this, you're certainly going to see one of the strangest sights you've ever seen in your life. Not only are all the people covered in sackcloth, but so are the animals. And then he says, let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. And if you remember that that was the thing that, that... characterized Nineveh, and it's the way when they conquered foreign peoples, they were violent. They were cruel people. And that was the thing that Jonah hated. It's the thing that all the prophets hated about Nineveh. They, 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 they lived in mortal dread and fear of them because they were just the nastiest people on earth. They didn't seem to have any morals at all with respect to other people. The way they treated captive peoples was just abhorrent in the extreme. So when the king says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hand, remember, that's one of the huge things that happens in the flood. There's there's great violence in the land. And so the king here even, who has directed some of this violence and certainly approved a lot of it with respect to conquered people, said, turn away from the violence. And he says, who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger. So that we may not perish. Now remember that word perish. That word perish goes back all the ways, P E R I S H, for Anglicans. The word perish is first used in Genesis, because you will surely die. And then they speak of perishing is what happens. They, they didn't die away from the earth, but they died. But it was perish is the word that goes back to there. So what does it mean that they would not perish? It means they wouldn't die today, but they would ultimately die. So the fear there is God's going to take their lives right away. They know they're going to die ultimately, but they don't want to perish today. So when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I've certainly heard a lot of prophecies in my life. I've heard prophecies about America and America's wicked ways and, and the things that we do that are displeasing to God. And so there's constantly a move and a call on us as the body of Christ to, to ourselves turn away in order that we might be sort of a, an example to the rest of the world. And we've got to take up our cross and follow him. And we've got to point out when wicked and evil things are going on in our land, we've got to oppose those things that we know to be wicked and evil in the hopes that that Lord will move in their hearts of those who do these things and, and they'll turn away from those things just as well. We've got to preach that word, but we've got to preach it in two ways. We've got to be clear, but we've also got to be clear of, of in in our own lives, that we're not hypocrites. And so we've got to live as close to Him as possible, and we've got to be willing to confess like the tax collector did in order that the world might see that, that we're not holding ourselves above them. We're simply pointing out the Lord's ways. So... The God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he didn't do it. And, and and that's not the same as saying he lays down his his hand upon them and blesses them and and now chooses them to be his people, but but he accepted that repentance of theirs. And so within Judaism there's an idea that um They live under the laws of 613 laws, but there's a separate covenant for the rest of the world. It's called the Noahide Covenant. I'm not going to go into them right now, but it's seven laws that are pretty straightforward laws. And they say if you keep those as a Gentile, then you will receive a part of the life to come. So there's always been a provision within Judaism for people who who are not part of the covenant community to to become—to be forgiven— and to be blessed in ways that other people are not. There's sort of three tiers, right? So there's the, the Jews who are God's favored people, and then there are the, the Noahide people who keep those laws but don't have to take on all 613, and then there are those who don't keep any of that. And so the, it, it, it's not outside of Judaism to read this passage this way because it's a, something they've long believed, that God cares about all nations, and so to the extent people repent and turn away from their evil ways and accept God's law and His, His rulership at that level, then, then it's not out of, um, out of the bounds of belief that God would relent and not bring disaster on a people who did that. So then it says, though, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, it's funny, that language you only see it pretty much in one other place and that's in Numbers eleven. And in Numbers eleven what's happened is the people have complained against Moses and against God because they're tired of the manna. They're sick of it. They they don't they want something else to eat and they they'll go back and they rehearse the, the things, Oh, we missed the cucumbers and the leeks and the this and the that that we had when we were in Egypt is well, as slaves, but they don't say it that way. So, But they, they, they long for the things that they had in Egypt, and they're sick of this manna. And, and God was very angry with them. And then it says Moses was displeased. That's a stronger word than it sounds like. But it displeased here, it displeases Jonah exceedingly. And I believe that that's, that language does actually go back to the story of Moses and the people and the manna because it uses the same language. It didn't just displease Jonah. It displeased him exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, isn't this what I said when I was yet in my own country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, How does he know that? Because that's exactly how God described himself to the wayward people of Israel when they sinned by committing the sin of creating a golden calf. God relented from the disaster, as he says here, relented from the disaster that he was going to bring on his people. He was going to wipe them all out and start all over again with Moses. And so it's the same language that goes back to that scene in the wilderness where they've created that calf while Moses is yet up on the mountain waiting to receive the commandments from the Lord. And, and he, so he's counting on God to be that kind of God, but he doesn't like it when God shows that same characteristic grace and mercy to people he doesn't like to people who are not good people. I mean, nobody would make the case that the people of Nineveh were good people or that they had turned completely to God here any more than the sailors did. God did what they needed Him to do, and so they turned to Him for that moment, gave Him thanks. It doesn't say that revival broke out and they all began to become Yahweh worshipers, nor does that happen here in Nineveh. And we know that it doesn't create a lasting effect on them because later then you see that Nahum gets to give the, property that jo- the prophecy that Jonah so longed to give, which is doom and destruction and, 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 and nastiness. God's so angry with you that he's going to tear you to shreds kind of stuff. But here Jonah says, I knew what kind of a God you were, and I knew that you would show it to these the same mercy to these people that you showed to the Israelites, and it's not right, and I didn't want to see that. Therefore, now, O Lord, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than live. Wow. The people of Nineveh don't want to perish. Jonah's ready to die. He's ready to give up his life rather than see God forgive these people and show mercy to them because he hates them. Jonah is the tax collector from the parable. He is comparing himself to them because he hasn't killed them or he hasn't destroyed people and he hasn't been cruel to people the way they have, then he should get rewards. And his prayer should be answered. God should take them down and take them out. The people of Nineveh are doing exactly what the tax collector said. I think maybe before I said he was like the tax collector, but he's not. He's like the Pharisee. Sorry about that. But the people are acting like the tax collector here. And Jonah's arrogance keeps him from that. And the Lord just says to him, in response to that, whatever that is, not a prayer really, but whatever it is, the Lord says, do you do well to be angry? <laughs> and Jonah doesn't even answer at that point. He just, he just leaves. He leaves the city and he sits at the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there. Sort of like in the desert when they made booths for themselves. He's going to set up here. He doesn't plan to be there forever. He's not building a house. He just builds a booth because he, doesn't, he expects that this is not going to last all that long. These people are going to turn again to their evil ways, and they're going to do it quickly, and I know it. And so he makes a booth, and he's sitting up there in that thing by himself, and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. It's hot out there, and so this plant comes up, and it grows up over Jonah's little hut. And Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But then dawn came up the next day, and God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. So God appoints this Shiraco wind to come blowing through there, and it's not only the heat and the wind, but it's also the sand and everything else. And Jonah is faint now, and he asked that he might die, and he said, it's better for me to die than to live. He says it again. And you know what this sounds like to me? It sounds to me very, very similar to the complaints that the Um, the Israelites made, certainly, because they would say, did you bring us out here into the wilderness for us to die? You didn't give us water, you didn't give us food, you didn't give us all these things. It would be better if we had stayed there. But it also sounds very much like another prophet. It sounds very much like Elijah, who when Jezebel said she was going to kill him, he ended up going out into the wilderness by himself this same way and pretending that he alone was a man of God and nobody else was, and God had to come to him and speak to him in the same way too. But God provided for for Elijah in the same way that he provided for Jonah. He provided food when he was under the broom tree on his way out there, and then he gave him that, and he sustained him with that, and then he went to the cave, and he fed him there. And so it reminds me very much of jo- of Elijah here. And so God said to Jonah, Again, he asked this same kind of question. Remember, he said before, do you do well to be angry? Here he says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Is it righteous, Jonah, for you to be angry about that plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, (laughs) angry enough to die. Seriously. I I can make fun of Jonah, but I can also be Jonah. Jonah. I can be as petulant as Jonah. I can be as demanding about getting my way and about being frustrated with the Lord's timing with things in my life. I can be Jonah very easily. And the Lord said to him, then you pity the plant for which you didn't labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. In other words, what he's saying is, you, Jonah, do well, you think, because you pity the plant, which was an act of mercy for an unrepentant sinner. I'm the one who gave you that. It was an act of mercy that I gave you that to shade you and save you from your discomfort. And then he asks, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left? In other words, do you think... You're way more important than 120,000 people. You think that all those people created in the image of God should die. That's your judgment, Jonah. You would bring that kind of judgment down on that city. And because I won't do it, you want to die. That's how important it was to you for me to judge them. You can't celebrate that I sent you to preach to that people and they actually heard your message and responded to it in the way that i would want them to respond they didn't respond in the way you wanted them to respond nor did i respond in the way you wanted me to respond but you knew that i would because you you know me to be that kind of merciful god and you initially wouldn't go because you didn't want me to give them mercy and you thought if you didn't go and preach that word then they wouldn't receive that mercy i gave you a second chance to be the hero in this story and you turned it down and now you're angry enough to die because of the way this story's ending. God cares about all those people. He cares about all those people that are created in His image. But there's something else in here too, remember? Remember, it wasn't just the people of Nineveh that repented in sackcloth. It was also the animals. And so this story didn't quite end where I stopped reading. Let me read that last sentence one more time, and I'll finish it this time. Should I... Not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. God gave mercy, not just on the people, but on the animals as well, because they're part of His creation, and they're important to God. That's a fascinating way to end that chapter which ends the book, actually. But it's it's should tell us something about the way that we treat not only other human beings, but the way that we treat animals around us as well. And so I commend that idea to you as well. But then the last thing we're going to do, and we're going to do this kind of quickly, is look at the uh, the epistle for today, which is Hebrews 12, 1 to 14. Therefore, since we're surrounded by... Because this tells us how to actually live. Once we pass through this this intense time of repentance and fasting and all that kind of stuff this is how you live so listen to this and I'm probably just gonna read this straight through I might have to add something therefore since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us and here's the way to run looking to Jesus the founder and perfector of our faith, the one who's been resurrected from the dead, that's John's editorial comment, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is our example, but he is also that one who stands at the finish line of that race to greet us and to say, Well done. And then it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And this is the exhortation. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. Our fathers discipline us, and we discipline our children according to what seems best to us for them. But He disciplines us for our good, because He alone is good and knows our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So I've told you how to repent. I've shown you what that looks like, and now in that Hebrews 12, 1 to 14 passage it's how do we run that race? And we've got to throw off all the weight that, and the sin that clings so closely and run with endurance that race. It's an important thing to do. It's an important thing to lay aside all those encumbrances that we might run well the race that stands before us. Let us not run like Jonah, at least not all the time but let's be willing always to both give and receive mercy just as we have received it. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding on an Ash Wednesday. Thank you for joining me today and I look forward to being with you again on Sunday.